Episode 124 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast in which Brian and myself utilize the music of Fish as a means of getting the listener to listen to other bands. These are usually not jam bands. We've made an exception as of late, as you guys must know. But um, like we say, usually not jam bands. However, the idea is that because we love Fish, we are Fish fans. Sometimes fish fans get a bit myopic, only pay attention to their favorite band, and their favorite band alone can reel off set lists, statistics, venues, tell you what they had to eat in the lot at a certain venue on a certain date. (laughs) I had that burrito in Worcester at 98, which tasted like gasoline, but I'm still here to tell the tale. Um, But sometimes... You talk about other bands, other songs, and they kind of look at you funny. And we're trying to do something about that because we love fish, but also we're trying to introduce you to as many other styles of music as possible. We are, and we do, and we continue to. And yes, Dave, that French bread pizza I had at Magnaball was divine. It tasted like the 1995 of my dreams. And then mm. Fish went on to play a couple of my favorite shows I've ever seen. So it is worth it to analyze the deep memories and and moments in our history with this band but it's also important to listen to other music which is what we try to do here at beyond the pond headquarters and as i'm noticing it is november 8th as of recording probably mid-november by the time you're hearing this because we edit here at our own pace guys we're not on a schedule we're not on a clock but as I'm noticing, we're getting towards the end of 2023, which means which means we're getting close to top albums episode time, which was our return episode last year, if you recall. I say that because you should all be listening to as much other music as possible. Get your lists in order. I'll tell you what, if you guys send us your lists into Beyond the Pond Podcast at gmail.com, we'll talk about it in our uh, end of year episode. So anyone out there who wants to get on the, uh, on the old podcast radio, wants to share their favorite music, please send it to beyond the pond podcast at gmail.com. But as you noted, Dave, it's great to have this journey with another band, with, with one band, with fish, have all this, these memories, all these stats, data, all in your head, but you've got to sometimes take a step back and listen to other music. And in today's episode, we are going to take a step back and look reflectively on Fish's summer and fall tour 2023. We have not yet really covered summer tour, so we're doing that here. We have not talked at all about fall tour because this is our first episode in a couple weeks. And we are going to spend a little bit of time as well over in Deutschland, over in um, my home country, where, my, where the Brinkman family come from to talk about some music that is uh, just built for speed. And uh, we find some hints of it in some of our favorite fish jams from this year. 
Indeed we have. So, themes of this episode we're going to do include racing down the Autobahn, how Krautrock has informed the jam world, and King Gizzard and the Horse Lords Wizards. So before we get to all that, I'm going to take care of some administrative stuff. I think we got a question from uh, the Beyond the Pond mailbag. We do. Uh Great listener out there, Evan Bernstein, wrote in to us with a very long email. I'm going to try to edit out a little bit of this, but there's some really good stuff in here, so I'll throw this out, and this should lead to some good discussion here between Dave and I. Hi, Dave and Brian. Thanks for this podcast and for your contributions to HF Pod as well as Flocking Outside. I listened to the jams that you recommended for Flocking Outside, and it was those tracks that finally turned me from intrigued by Goose to an actual fan. Really happy to hear that, Evan. That's awesome. Up until then, I liked their songs, but wasn't so into the jams. Now, in your last episode, episode 123 of Beyond the Pond, you did the same for Eggy. I wish I could combine Goose's songs with Eggy's jams. I really appreciate that they're more democratic, and those Eggy jams that you guys suggested were great. I'm going to go and see them now when they come through Boston in November. I've been hearing about them for years, but I did not know where to start. I feel honored that we helped with this. Mm. I will say, Evan, if you check out some of Eggy's uh, covers of CSNY, it is a great that combination of, of kind of the goose songs with the Eggy jams. You get that a lot in that in that sort of combination. But um, really, really glad we, d- we uh, turned someone on to Eggy here. So it continues here. Brian, I, I feel really proud of this next paragraph. I know you often get mocked and ribbed for your lists of best jams and shows, but I find them incredibly helpful. I'm just here to serve the people, baby. That's what I'm here for. The biggest problem I have with lists is how much uh, remembering of timestamps and rewinding I have to do in the podcast to write them down. I'm here to request one thing, more lists and to share them publicly, maybe in episode notes. I got to figure this out because it'll take up a lot of space to share our lists. My, what I think I'm going to do is revive the Beyond the Pond blog on medium and i will post that stuff to there because there's no real good way to do about this since i'm not on social media we got to just do this like i got to reach out to the people themselves so i think i'm going to revive that i'll I'll make that a project over winter break uh it continues here since 2021 i've been listening to every concert of fish and the disco biscuits i can barely keep up and listen to other music i'm always a few weeks behind now that you've got me into Goose and Eggy, the task is impossible. I can't do it, but I do want to listen to the highlights of those bands. Long story short, will you be willing to share your list more publicly or at least with me? I don't want to listen to every Goose or Eggy show, but I'd love to know if there's a track or two or 20 I should get or whole shows that are worth it. Thank you. If you're not willing to do that, I'm curious what your thoughts are about the Goose's notable jams list. I will advocate for the Notable Jams list as someone who's a contributor to there. There's some excellent writing there, and the people who are behind that know their shit. Uh, That is the most comprehensive place to start with Goose. The list is huge, but maybe it's what I should use. It doesn't seem like Eggy has jam charts on its set list site yet. Thanks for everything you guys do, Evan Bernstein. Um, I will just say, from an Eggy standpoint... uh, that is definitely something that we need on their website because there are some excellent, excellent jams, especially here of the last fall tour. Um, there's a lot here, Dave. I guess like the question at the root of this, how do you 
a compile list of your favorite jams, your favorite shows, your favorite uh, albums, and what do you think is the best way for us to share them with the listeners? I just let you compile a list of jams. Then when my thigh <laughs> rings, I know it's the buzz of my phone saying, oh, Brian updated one of his lists. Cool. I have to turn my notifications off at like 11 o'clock at night. Otherwise, I get buzzed at one in the morning about, oh, this new I think it's jam. a dangerous thing for me to just be sending out my Apple notes to, to, to people. Like I, I have <laughs> like a core group of people that get that and you, you all get those updates, but um, I don't know if I'm ready to open that up to the whole world. No, no, no. We don't need to do that. We can keep it, keep it close. Um, with lists. Yeah. I think a medium page would not be a terrible idea. I know kind of putting it into the notes of the podcast, would get a bit unwieldy. Added to the fact that we want you to listen to the podcast, that's kind of the Easter egg in there, although it requires a bit of rewinding, a bit of uh, writing things out, it kind of almost feels more old school to us, that you have to listen, and you got to have the pen and paper, and once you write that down, then do it that way, it's almost more rewarding than just going to the page and looking at it and like fast forwarding to that, um, you know, that certain timestamp. But, you know, I'm not uh, really opposed in any way to uh putting lists i think maybe one way to do it might maybe have the podcast out we can have you know talk about get the timestamps inside the podcast maybe like a few four or five days later we can put it up on medium page so at the very least you're forced to listen to us and then you can go take a look at it yeah i'll be uh Totally transparent. When we when we did this podcast every other week back from 2017 to the end of 2020, uh, we had a Medium page and I kept very detailed notes and wrote a ton about it and it just took up a lot of time. And I think when we brought this podcast back uh, last year, one of our agreements to each other was uh, no stress. We're just going to, we're going to log on and talk when we feel like we need to talk and we will appear slightly inconsistently in your um uh, in your podcast queue, but we know all of our core and dedicated listeners out there. When you see that logo pop up with a new episode, you're going to be excited. I get texts all the time from friends who are like, Oh my God, another new bot beyond the pond. I had no idea it was coming out. Um, so I say all that just like, we are not putting in the background work right now of logging all of the recommendations and jams. And I know that that does make it difficult. Uh, Evan, you are not the only listener that we've heard from. I think a medium page would be a good happy medium, if you will, uh, for us to document some of this stuff a little bit more and uh, get you guys the info. But I will say as well to your comment, um, I, I listen to a lot of movie podcasts and um, like over the last year, I've been just like trying to learn about uh, like more technical sides of filmmaking and like structures of storytelling. And so I listen to a lot of movie podcasts and I'm not really well versed in that world. So like I'm, t I take a lot of notes in my Apple note, like as I'm listening to the podcast, I'll just like have like a little note that I write down. And I, I would say it's over the last year, like it, it has created a very long note of information and keywords and terms and movie recommendations and scenes where things are done perfectly and blah, blah, blah. That has been really helpful for me as I've uh, learned a lot about movies. So for anyone out there who listens to our show, uh, I would recommend having a note pulled up on Apple and just start jotting some stuff down uh, as you hear things that you like. It's uh, it's quick how it's crazy how like quickly that stuff um, 
uh, a masses and you have a full list for yourself to dive into. Um, thank you for writing in Evan. He also brings up, you know, talking through Eggie and goose. He got into goose this year. Um, seems to be keyed in to go see Eggie in Boston, which is great. Our good buddy, Josh Carver will be at that show. Um, Eggie and goose have been on tour for on and off the last two months, Dave, what have your thoughts been on both of their tours and kind of what are some big highlights for you from, uh, let's start with goose first and then we can hop to Eggie. Um, highlights of goose, the second night of red rocks, which would have been, was it Friday night? Uh, yeah, the Friday night yeah. show. Yeah. They right, it was Thursday, all right. It was Thursday and Friday and Saturday they played, um, that college outdoors. Right. Fort Collins. Right. Um, I thought the second night of Red Rocks was excellent. It was probably one of the better, maybe the best show of the fall. The night before, uh, the Thursday night show, which I had contemplated going to but ended up not doing, actually, was um, not very good. That was... (laughs) Not good at all. (laughs) No. That was one of those... Yeah, that wasn't great. Uh, Goose Fall Tour has been good. I'm starting to get a little bit concerned because I'm not getting as much risk-taking as I would like from a band in the current position, which is they're playing shows in Europe now. They're getting larger. I'm guessing they're going to play almost entirely arenas and very large theaters next year. And I think at a point where they should be really challenging their fan base and stretching out and really kind of doing all the wackiness that Fish kind of came to 93, 94, 95, not saying they have to be exactly like fish, but in order to hold my interest in the long run, I need to see them breaking down more improv and just kind of, because a lot of the jamming at this point, they're still trying to break out of the let Rick go crazy while Peter smiles and plays chords behind him for like 10 minutes at a time. And some of their new songs are they're okay. I don't know. Yeah. I kind of, when they put out the Dripfield record, Dripfield, incredible song, Hunger Sight, incredible song, just a really well-done, well-produced album. The latest batch of songs, I guess, including, um, what, Dr. Darkness, Lead Up, Mr. Action. Mr. Action. Eh, get me more Hunger Sight and more Dripfield. Stuff along those lines. Yeah, I we've we talked about this a lot offline, and um, in some ways, I've uh, uh, been terrified of us hitting record and talking about our thoughts on Goose currently because we're we're basically on the same page here. I think you know it's it's an interesting question of like, there's been a lot of Goose this year, which has been it's it's been awesome. It's been great to like have consistent tours and a lot of webcasts and a lot of shows, and it's a constant source of conversation. But is it so much that like, as a listener, we need a break or is it as you're describing, which is kind of where my, my head is at, um, that they feel like they're at a point where they know what they're good at. They're playing what they're good at. They're not taking a ton of huge risks from an improvisational or songwriting standpoint. And is part of that, a, just the natural leveling up to wherever they get to next and exposing themselves to more people and being in a position where there are more eyes on them. And so as a result, you just stick with your strengths or have we reached a different place with goose and the narrative is shifting in terms of their overall longevity. I know that I feel very similar to what you have said 
in the sense that there was this period in time where it felt like every Goose debut showcased a ton of songwriting promise, both on a lyrical standpoint and on a musical standpoint. And all these new songs were leading to really interesting jams. Um, I think about specifically the winter 2022 uh, tour where you had Hunger Sight, you had Born, you had Atlas Dogs, um, you had Dripfield, all emerge and all immediately become jam vehicles during a period in time where the band was really exploring new sounds and new musical ideas and taking really big risks and playing kind of dark and weird and edgy jams. That to me is, was like, it is the peak of where goose has gone thus far. And since then it feels a little bit more tame and a little bit more polished in a way that I really hope is just a transitional period and is not who the band is long-term. Right. You're talking about like March, 2022. Yeah. That whole period where like, yeah, every show has just like a jam that, I mean, you listen back to it even now and it just, it blows you away how, how interconnected and, uh, risky this band is at that point. Yeah. January through March of 2022 for goose. That's to me is, uh, that's what I find myself wanting to go back to the most. Yeah. This point. Have we become vets? Is this what's happening? We become happening? jaded we... goose vets. <laughs> I, jaded I will say vets. just just quickly, mm. like the fall tour, like had a couple really strong moments. I thought the Missoula show was amazing. I thought that the second night of Red Rocks, as you noted, was great. Um, I liked the Fox, the uh, the Oakland run, um, but it did feel like kind of one step forward, two steps back a lot. And and I think you and I have talked about this. We really liked the Cap run. We really liked the first part of the spring tour this year kind of feels like Nashville was that last March, 2022 type moment for this band. And we'll see what happens. Well, I, I don't, I don't really know. I mean, they've got a lot going on right now and a ton of eyes on them. So who knows? I think with regard to Eggy, we've talked about, I think they've been really leveling up in this fall tour. I think, uh, the shows I've listened to from the fall, in addition to sounding very good, it sounds like, um, whatever tech, they're using to record the shows for Nugs has been very good a step up. Um, you know, their jams continue to be very interesting, interconnected with a sense of purpose. And the guitarist has this new effect that he's almost been overusing, but all loud because it's really cool, which kind of makes his guitar sound super fast and super staccato. And like the keyboards at the beginning of uh, like Bob O'Reilly, like the big Pete Townsend, Pete Townsend keyboard feature. And that just has made things quite fun. And they're still really good at covering CSN. <laughs> like, really, really good. Like, strangely good. Yeah, their Crosby, Stills, Nass & Young uh, covers are just like, they're so spot on. But it sounds like them. Like, it, I don't know. It's, it's, it's all, like, filtered through, through these guys and, like, their very unique voices. And uh, they're just, like... They're kind of like a head on rhythm in a way that like there's an eagerness to the way that they cover uh, CSN and it, it shouldn't sounds, work. There's no it reason shouldn't that these work. like four early 30 or something dorks can play like such engaging, engaging versions of Crossy Stills Nash and Young covers. But I was listening to the show. I think it was Chicago. Maybe it was Minneapolis. They played Kiss from a Rose, uh, and mm. after it, Jake goes. That song, 
was always destined to be played by four Jewish boys from Connecticut. And the crowd just like went crazy. And they, they play a very, yeah, they play a great that's... cover of uh, Kiss from a Rose, even though that's like kind of a joke song. Like they like nail it. They, they, and, they, and then they jam it a little bit. And that's just like, like Eggy nails their covers in a way that Goose does uh, as well. But like there's something about Eggy that feels more in the vein of that, um, music nerdery that, that we've always associated with fish that doesn't feel like they should nail covers that they should play covers because they like them. But like talent wise, it shouldn't be there to deliver it, but it is, it's crazy. It's been a lot of my listening has been the recent eggy shows. I'm going to go see them next Saturday. They're playing Brooklyn bowl. Their first like two mm. set headlining show at Brooklyn bowl. Really excited for that. That's a good milestone for them. Um, yeah, and also their social media game is so tight. Like they come up with these lovingly like dorky promotional like 30 second videos for their concerts and it doesn't come off as cloying. It just comes off as, uh, you know, fun stuff for the TikTok era. It remind me of, um, you know, like bands in the 80s and 90s would make music videos where it was like clear that they were all friends and having a good time. And their, their, their advertisements for their upcoming shows remind me of that, of them like in target and, uh, you know, from a, just like joking manner out on the town, uh, very playful, uh, fun with each other. They seem like a bunch of college dudes just like hanging out, being mischievous around town. It's good stuff. But yeah, I'll add like their fall tour has felt like uh, a big leveling up, um, from a set listing standpoint, it's been really, really strong. Some of my favorite shows of the overall year have happened throughout, uh, the fall tour. Um, I'm thinking of, uh, I believe the Seattle show was really strong. Salt Lake city was really good. Denver had a really awesome show. Uh, they play these four nights hat. in the Midwest. Top Hat Missoula was an excellent show. Um, that was like a full set uh, from Eggy. Uh, there are four shows that they played in the Midwest. In mid-October, they did uh, Cleveland, Chicago, Minneapolis, and Milwaukee. And all of those were excellent. Um, a lot of just really cool jams. Um, like you said, that effect that Jake is employing has kind of been the star of the overall tour and it's allowed them to get into these really hypnotic rhythmic jams, um, that just feature full band jamming and they kind of evolve and Bob and weave some amazing versions of versions of all wheels turning and shadow. Um, plus their encores remain the best encores in the game. There's no encore like an eggy encore. Uh, the way that they reprise like six different songs played during the show, segue them in and out of each other, throw a random cover in there. It's just really, really special stuff. Um, and for the two of us, we're going to talk about this band a little bit later, but, uh, two guys who are just big time on the gizzard train at this moment in our lives. Uh, they're cover of interior people is one of the greatest covers in all of jam band world right now. Yeah. I don't know why, why Eggy is so good at covering interior people. And yeah, I don't think King Gishu's actually ever played that song live. It blows my mind. <laughs> given so how it's like the greatest song ever. <laughs> and on that note, let's get to the fish.
as we noted at the very top of this episode, we are talking fish summer and fall 2023. We have not done deep dives on either of these tours yet. We've definitely been talking about these tours in the months uh, and weeks since they happened uh, via our text chain. And we have a lot of thoughts. Um, I think overall, we thought these were two really strong tours. Um, I think, you know, without giving my hand away too much, we both really enjoyed the spring and think of that right now as the peak of 2023 fish. It's a very high peak and I don't think that they went down too much further. I just, I, I wonder if we saw the best of them early on in the year. Sometimes it happens, but there's definitely a ton of interesting music that has happened since then. Some really good shows. I have my full list of favorite jams uh, and shows of the year in front of me. And it's just, it's densely packed. It's got a lot of, there's just a lot in there. There's been a lot this year that has been uh, just excellent and worth re-listening to. And um, we will definitely be talking about that as we get into our year-end episode. We did want to talk here just about the summer and the fall tours. And uh, we're going to spin this out, talk a bit of Kraut Rock, because we heard a lot of Kraut Rock throughout these uh, these uh, these two tours. Before we jump into like specifics about the tour, I just want to ask you a couple questions, Dave, and kind of get the ball rolling here. Um, what did you think was the biggest difference, uh, between fish's summer and fall tour. The return of random Neil Young bust outs. <sighs> we got a cinnamon oh, wow. girl. We got Albuquerque. Holy <sighs> shit, man. Uh, seriously though. Um, I didn't think summer was that different than fall. I mean, fall, there was a little yeah. bit more, Embracing of the weird fish that we crave, less reliance on the bright major scales, the almondsy stuff. Definitely a little bit more of the darkness, although they had like fewer shows in which to do it. I mean, Trey seems really more dialed into his pedals than ever, and the transitions between his d different effects are, I think, as smooth as they've ever been in in 4.0. He doesn't lean on any certain one that he tended to do like back in like 2021. There's a lot more variety. Um, certainly the ends of the, both the Nashville Golden Age and the Dayton Ruby Waves, which we're going to talk more about, are probably right up there with some of the freakiest moments of 2023. But I think <laughs> overall, it's less of a new chapter than kind of a continuation of what was going on in the summer, most of which is already very good to begin with. So if there's any difference a little more minor key darkness but overall kind of just more of a sequel than anything else i think yeah i would agree with that i think that you know we've seen a couple of times where uh like for example um 2018 uh the summer tour was solid it had some really good jams it had some really good shows but i think we all would agree even curveball aside, it was kind of an uneven tour in a lot of ways. And then they came back for the fall and suddenly that fall tour was just another level and it was taking the really interesting jams of summer and blowing them out a bit more, sprinkling a few more into shows. And you ended up getting some really killer shows that when you look back at 2018, you think of fall tour distinctively different from summer. Whereas this, I don't think I would necessarily think of fall tours distinctively different from summer. I think that you're absolutely right. There was a little bit more darkness that felt in line with that, uh, 
transitional nature of fall, similar to the way spring is, where there's just kind of uncertainty and a little bit of darkness hinting its way into the brightness. Um, where summer was very joyous. I think the band probably had, uh, I get the sense the band was very relaxed throughout the summer. They always knew as the summer went along that they had these seven shows at MSG where they could finish out the last week really strong, sleep in their own beds, play in a venue that they know the people there, they know the venue really well and that they love playing at. And so there was just this like permeation of joy throughout the tour. But if you think about these shows, like the best shows of fall, are pretty much in line with the best shows of summer. There's no noticeable step up or step down. It's kind of a lateral move in a way that I think really worked. You had the same same kind of flaws that impacted parts of summer tour, impacted the end of fall tour, I would say, but the highs were relatively similar to what we experienced uh, just a few weeks prior, both at Dick's as well as um, uh, throughout July and early August. Um, on that note... Compare this, uh, fall tour, the fall 2023 tour to any other period in fish history. What you got? I mean, I kind of keep coming back to fall 2018. Like you said, I mean, fall 2018 was a step up from summer 2018. And I'm just trying to think if it's because we've already established it was less of a step up than a lateral, but in terms of kind of playing, I'm also coming back to it because I think they played a lot of the same cities. Like in fall mm. 2018, they played Chicago. Chicago. Yeah, they played Nashville. They played Chicago. I don't. I can't. Don't think they played any shows in Ohio. But I mean, mostly because of that. I remember fall 2018 being very strong, with a lead up to one of maybe one of the strongest like four day runs in Las Vegas, like the Casbot Vaxed and whatnot. Um, yeah, I don't know why my mind keeps coming to fall like 2018. I just think because high quality shows played in the Midwest in October, which yeah, is all kind no, of, I get that. it's like all surface level, but yeah. And it'd be interesting to throw some of these really quality shows from fall 23 into fall 18. I feel almost like they would seem stronger just based on the context. Um, so I've got the first night of Chicago in fall 2018, which I want to say it was October 26, 26. 2018. That's could be my favorite show of the year. I fucking love that show. It's a really fun I show. That show like probably once a month at this point, which is a lot for me. But I keep coming back to summer '98 ish. Um, not necessarily stylistically. Like they're not really playing ambient music. They're not really doing the big covers other than like Neil Young. Um, but it, you know, you think about like how strong 97 was and how much people love 97 and 98 doesn't feel better than 97, but it doesn't feel worse. Like, especially the summer tour, it feels like a continuation. And I mm. think that, um, you get that shock of 97 and, um, you know, the 98 ends up being just like very solid, good, strong fish. Um, I think from a stylistic standpoint, um, this fall tour reminded me of just a slightly lighter version of spring. I think that overall it was kind of my ideal in a sense from a jamming standpoint. Um, stylistically, I would have liked a few more jams. I would have liked a few more shows that, whereas spring tour, it felt like they couldn't play a bad song if they tried, or they couldn't play like a 
poorly constructed set if they tried. This one definitely needed a little bit more effort, but stylistically, I think that there was, um, it was closer there to spring than it was to summer tour. Um, last question for you before we get into the meat of this. So 2023 has featured quite a few excellent jams, um, and a very diverse palette of jams, you know, from the abstract to the kraut rocky, to the peaking, to the five minutes tacked on of absolute madness, just a lot of different jams. If there's any sort of 2020, if there's any 2023 jam you'd love to see expanded on stylistically in 2024, which is it and why? Sir, probably I'll give you two answers. One is, um, the no men or no man's land from Friday night at Dick's, which mm, mm. despite only think being like 13, 14 minutes is one of my favorite jams of 2023, just for the like flying rush of all encompassing sound that makes it sound like you're hand gliding over the Grand Canyon on mushrooms. You don't get that anywhere <laughs> else. You get that nowhere else. Another one which comes to mind is um, Split Open and Melt from Night 2 of Nashville, which, holy shit, that goes on a journey. They just throw out the playbook and do about four or five different themes packed into 18 minutes. I think it's probably the best Split Open row of the year, which, considering the quality of some of the ones that we've seen, is pretty impressive. But it's just all over the place, and they just say, fuck it. This is the set closer. We got some time. Let's do the roller coaster thing. And it's uh, impressive in its audacity, all the ground that covers. I remember just texting you and our buddy Josh Carver saying, like, whoa, where are they going with this? Oh, they're coming back again. Oh, where are they going with this? Oh, 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 my. Oh, yeah. In so many words. I remember doing an A-B test of that and the 9-1 split up in a melt, which I was at and I loved. And that was one of my favorite shows I saw all year. And 10-7 is the jam. That is the split up and melt of the year. I have that currently as my uh, number 22nd favorite jam of the year. Um, the Red Rocks one, that was like a walk-off, right? Was that the encore? The Dicks one, yeah, yeah. It was a walk-off. Yeah, okay. um, they did Wilson into split up and melt after uh, what I would consider a perfect second set. Um, yeah. Those are good picks, man. Those are really good picks. I think... Um, I'm going to go with two as well. The first uh, is one that we'll probably speak about a little bit later in a bit more depth. So I will, I will be brief. The 729 Fuego, specifically the final f 10 minutes, let's go, from like 19 minutes to 30. Um, there's a moment around like 19, 1915, that Fishman and Trey just lock into this absolute groove that breaks the jam down and it could end there and they just keep it going and they talk on that additional 10 minutes. And that is something that happened throughout 2023 that has been so exciting. You think about that tweezer from uh, the Greek theater where it sounded around 18 minutes, like it was going to be done. And then they peaked it and then they went to this weird zone. And then you thought at 30 minutes, it's going to be over. And then they went back into tweezer and it went on for another 13 minutes and then went into simple, which went on for 19 minutes. Like there were just like, not just two minute tack on jams in this whole year. There's been like five to 10 minutes, which have been absolutely thrilling. Plus that fuego ends with like the most gorgeous kraut rock section of bliss that. Oh Yeah. Oh yeah. Dave was at, you were there, right? 
Yeah, yeah, that was that was amazing. Yeah, I was watching that on a bed in Wyoming as I was driving with my son up to Montana, and I just was like lying in bed, just like this is the greatest music I've heard maybe all all year. I think it might be my favorite five minutes of music I've heard all year. Um, so that one, a hundred percent for sure. Um, the other one, I'm gonna go with uh, the two twenty four Ruby Waves. There is some stuff in that jam that's still my number five jam of the year. There's some stuff in that jam between Fishman and Trey that is so fast and is so engaging and is so wild and so weird. And I don't think they fully repeated it or replicated it throughout this year. They got to some really dark and weird places, but the speed that the two of them were playing with where they're just like jumping from idea to idea I don't know, man, you, you said it really well earlier. Like Trey is locked in with his effects right now. He's also locked in with like speed and accuracy in a way mm. that if that can continue and him and Fishman going into their sixties can continue to lock in the way that they are. I mean, we have, we're always going to go through ups and downs with this band, but like at this point in Fish's history, uh, what at least like five more years of this type of creativity is not absurd to be thinking that we have on the table and hearing something like that Ruby waves from Mexico amongst other Ruby waves, but that one specifically from a stylistic standpoint just makes me think that this is going to keep going and keep giving us uh, new music and new ideas to, to latch on to. So some good jams in there. I was going to say, everyone kind of tends to think of us like Mexico as bonus fish like I don't, I still don't think people kind of hold the Mexico shows or don't pay attention to on par with like you know summer tour, a fall tour, a holiday tour. But let me tell you, that two twenty four show, that's a top ten show of the year. That's hundred uh, percent. That's a phenomenal show. I mean, the early Mexico shows do kind of have a bonus feel, but I think over the past three times they've been there, they've taken them much more seriously, and you get full interesting shows and i mean that 224 that's to me maybe like a top three mexico show i i would agree i mean i have that as seven over the overall for the year right now um yeah you know the first two years had that first year 2016 uh was it 2016 yeah it had a decent saturday night and a pretty good sunday 2017 is sneaky underrated. There's some really good stuff in there, but the Sunday night show is what everyone remembers. And then, yeah, since 2019, you know, you had those great jams on night one. Night two of 2019 is a really solid show. 2020 has an amazing show on 222 uh, that just gets totally overshadowed. Was it 2019? The set, it's got like a 20-something 20, 20 minute Mercury followed by a 20-minute... Always set want it this way. Opens the set, Such, and then yes, yeah, uh, and then Mercury. Uh, the night, the night before, though, you, what you're thinking about the I always want it this way. The 20 minute one. Okay, right, but it was those two shows back to right. The huge set your soul free, then the huge Mercury. Yeah. That's and he was and, using a lot of like David Gilmore, like Run Like Hell effects. Yeah, and that was a really exciting time because you know we were coming off of Fall 2018. Um, New Year's Eve 2018 was really good. And then Mexico 2019, it was just a very interesting, you know, cold weather stretch of really quality fish. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, and I thought 2022 Mexico was excellent. This year was a bit of a dip overall stylistically. And 
But the 224 show that you mentioned and the Ruby waves I was talking about, those are huge, huge moments if you haven't listened. Um, all right. So we're going to jump into a breakdown here, a bit more detailed breakdown. If we haven't gotten detailed enough for you of uh, Fish's summer and fall tour from 2023. But before we do that, we have a very, very special segment here. Um, we have a very special fan who went to her very first fish show this summer. Um, and we have to hear her experience and how it, uh, helps us to get a clear picture of what fish is like, what fish means to us and, uh, what fish was like here in, uh, summer 2023. So let's hear it from my nine-year-old daughter, Hannah Tamar Davis Goldstein. Hey Hannah, how are you? Good. Yes. Did you have fun seeing fish for the first time? Yeah, it was a good show. So, Hannah, your dad's been listening to fish and talking about fish for a long time now. What is it about fish that made you want to see them in concert? Um, I think they're just like a good band in general. They make good music. Um. So when you went to the show, what were you expecting? I didn't really know what I was expecting, but like, I was like, I knew some of their music, not a lot, I guess. Yeah. Um. So you've been to a couple other concerts. I believe you've been to see Haim. Is there any others that I'm forgetting? Uh, I think I've been to see Colorado Jepsen once. Yes. How did Fish compare to seeing... Haim and uh, Carly Rae Jepsen. I think they were all like equally good. Um, out of all of them, I don't really have a favorite. Yeah. yeah. What was your favorite part of the fish show? Uh, maybe like Ghost. Was that Ghost? Yes. I think it was the opening song. It was. It was the, yeah. It was the opener, actually. You were grooving pretty hard on that Ghost. It was a good way to start the show. It was a really good ghost to start out, start off the show. It was a great jam. Um, yeah, it was good. <laughs> that was the first fish song I ever got to see. It was like a 15, 17 minute ghost. I would have been very happy. The first fish show song I ever saw was Axela 2, which was fine, but it was no 15 minute ghost. So. Mine was Rift, and I always kind of hold something against that song because it was the first album I ever got was Rift. So it lined up too perfectly to hear Rift. This is the first song on an album and then the first live show I saw. This is a bit past Hannah's bedtime, but is there anything else you want to say about the fish experience? Uh, I think overall, just a good experience. Um, if I go to another fish concert again, I'll look forward to it. And now goodbye. I think that's the big question. Do you think that you're going to go back to another fish show? I think so. And if I did, I think I'd enjoy it a lot. I love it. That's all. That's all I ask. She wants to That's go it. again, and she would. She would enjoy it a lot. Excellent. Well, Hannah, thank you for being the first kid on Beyond the Pond. Not only did you see your first fish show, but you're also the first kid on Beyond the Pond. That is a huge, huge moment. We appreciate you being on. Thank you. Good to know, and goodbye. Good night. All right. Hannah Davis Goldstein, everybody. Hannah Davis Goldstein.
Thank you, Anna. That was amazing. So incredible to hear from her. It's so cool that you brought her to a show um, and that you brought her to a show with a huge ghost opener. That's one thing she's always been asking for. Um, it's funny because so my son Wallace turned eight this year and this was the first year he got really sad when we were going to see fish at Dick's and he couldn't come and we made a deal with him. Uh, we gave him for his birthday, two tickets or tickets to any two Red Rock shows that he wants to go to next summer. Mm. And the deal is if he can stay the whole show, we will take him to see fish at one night of Dick's. So he's got to stay oh. the whole show at a Red Rock show to prove that he can do it because he's got to stay mom and awake dad, stay the whole show. Oh, okay, he's got to stay the whole show. Mom, the show. mom and dad can't leave fish dicks early. We got we got too many people we're responsible for. So Wallace has got to come there. He's got to hang out the whole show. I'll hold him if he wants if he gets tired. But um, that's the deal. That's the rule. And um, we are uh, really hopeful and excited that he's able to go to a fish show this upcoming summer. Yeah, we had our. Um I couldn't resist. I put her in a T-shirt that said "My First Show," so of course <laughs> I knew that was going to attract a lot of looks. Just being like, "Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! World's greatest dad!" And I was into it, but she's a little shy. She's like, mm, "Okay, like Dad, how do you know these people?" I'm like, I don't. <laughs> They're just really nice, man. They're just I super know, excited like, for you. Like, yeah, no, Beyond the Pond is even more famous than realized. No. Just uh, <laughs> excited that it, it's your first show. But that was a really, it was a great experience. And uh, 8-1 was a very, very good show. That was excellent. I think it was a Tuesday or Tuesday or Wednesday. I think it was a Tuesday night. That was Tuesday, was yeah. Tuesday, right, okay. So, anyway. So let's talk here, uh, summer 23, 23. We're going to kick this off, talk summer 23, 23, and then dive into the fall as well. Um so this tour stretched from uh, Huntsville, Alabama, all the way to Madison Square Garden, and then uh, to Dick's for the annual closeout at Dick's Sporting Good Park. Um, when we were listening to this tour, you know, just to kind of kick things off, and we were talking about this earlier, there was a brightness to the overall tour that, um, to me, felt like a significant contrast to a lot of what we heard in the fall, which was very abstract and weird and kind of dark and dismal in ways that we really loved. This was that joyful feeling of seeing fish on a amphitheater lawn in the month of July. It also felt to me like, you know, the fact that we had the second MSG residency lingering overhead, there was just a sense of comfort and ease and peace uh, within the band. Um, even when they had to do the Vermont flood shows, um, which, you know, knowing that these guys have such ties to Vermont, you can imagine that they felt awful about the um, conditions uh, in the state following the floods in early July. They came through with a very joyous and heartfelt two-night stand there, um, featuring an incredible guest sit-in, featuring a great show on night one, um, and then close the summer off with uh, three really great shows at Dick's and one show that um, happened, you know, and it just, it happened, it existed. Um, but Dave, what are your thoughts? I mean, I hear a lot of Allman Brothers jamming. I see, I hear this kind of joyful, inventive set listing without going too crazy, getting too weird. What are your thoughts when you kind of think back with a few months uh, uh, removal from summer tour? Very much concur with the peaky Allen Brothers jamming. A lot of major scales, a lot of bright, 
major keys, a lot of Mixolydian mode. To me, it kind of also felt like the first tour. They really mastered the use of their in-ear monitors. Seems mm-hmm. like the inter the interband communication seems as strong as it's been in a long time, and it almost kind of takes each band member less time to pick up what, what the other dudes are putting down. Like for example, if Trey is trying to steal the jam into D major as he often tends to do. Whereas it used to take Paige, I don't know, 20 seconds to pick up on it. Now it takes them like two seconds because it seems like they're really able to hear and predict what's going to happen. And as a watcher, you just, you know, you see, um, you think, how do they have this telepathy, which comes from playing together 40 years, but now it opens up a whole like world of sound that they didn't necessarily have when they were using wedges, which is cool. Um, there's also... There was a bunch of attempts at incorporating uh, the new Trey songs. He debuted in Denver. It's the Trey Trio from back in June. Oblivion, Trey and Tom song. Good song. That's the keeper in the sense that I think the one in Syracuse was like 23 minutes. Like they really, mm-hmm. he started taking the jamming it like right away. And probably that's in, that song was almost played, got average. Every three shows, I think out of all the new songs, that one's definitely played the most. Um, other songs, The Well, kind of somewhat sappy lyrical content, but a really big, fun, dissonant jam, especially the one in Philadelphia. That's the keeper. Beyond that, um, Pillow Jets, Eat Their Edge, Broken to Pieces. Eh. They're, uh, they kind of... St- Stick out like sore thumbs. You're getting into this. You're getting into the show, and you're like, "Huh? What's this? Oh yeah, this is like some Trey Trio song." Well, okay. Yeah, I definitely got that with the new songs. I feel like there was, you know, we're we're it's so normal now to have like a summer where like eight new songs debut, and a few of them hit, a few of them don't, and the years go by, and. You're still getting Mercury every like 10 shows. You're still getting Set Your Soul Free pretty regularly. But, um, you know, there are some other songs from 2018 that just don't show up anymore. You know, other years are, are similar in that sort of standpoint. Uh, 2015, you get a Blaze On and No Men on a regular basis. You don't really get, um, you don't really get Can't Always Listen. You don't really get Shade all that often. Um, you know, it's... Yeah, they, did, they uh, didn't play Shade that much this summer. They yeah. didn't play that much this summer. You got Scabbard in 2015. You don't really get that much more. I don't know. Some songs stick, some songs don't. And I think you're absolutely right. There are a few songs from this summer that I don't think are necessarily going to follow us uh, for years. But having a song like Oblivion that is really cool lyrical content, it's pretty dark. It does sound a little bit like adult contemporary in a sense, um, but it leads to really cool jams. That Syracuse version you talked about, uh, the version from October 6th, which we'll talk about a little bit when we get to fall tour, just some really, really cool jamming in there. Um, For whatever reason, like with Wave of Hope, uh, I got an eight-minute Oblivion when I saw them uh, at Dick's. Um, I've never once gotten a jammed-out Wave of Hope either. It's all just eight-minute versions. Uh, they must know that I'm there and be like, no, we're not going to play our jam songs jammy. We're just going to play We're going to give Brinkman a wave of nope. <laughs> <laughs> the so, other thing I will say, though, in this kind there of There was one like mic debut. Oh, was there? Yeah, they played Back in the Bubble on 
August 4th. I think I turned oh my to my God. buddy and said, this is Shake Shack 2, higher fructose. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to get this one again. This will be called up once no. every three years, maybe. They had a deal. Trey was like, all right, you can play back in the... Well, I'll play back in the bubble as long as, like, fucking Mike's song goes 25 minutes in the second set. Mike said, deal. <laughs> and that's what happened. The other thing I was going to say, uh, just to your point about the inner monitors, because I think it's really, uh, it's really spot on. And I think, you know, the further we get from 2022 Fish, I do wonder if part of what didn't totally work for me is that the band wasn't hearing each other as much or was having a harder time reacting immediately because of the monitors. It was their first tour where they were really using them. Um, but I felt that the polyrhythmic connections between Fishman and Trey were just out of control. And, um, I mean, my right arm when at Dick's, like I just like, I played drums through every jam and I was trying to keep up with Fishman and, my right arm, like it just, it got sore and it got muscular. Like it just, I, I was working like crazy for four nights because it would just fall in these jams and Fishman would just like, it was just like crazy jamming back and forth with Trey. Oh my God, dude. I was just losing my mind. That sort of stuff, that connection between the two of them was incredible. Um, from a takeaway standpoint, um, you know, one big thing for me, I, I I said this earlier, but I feel like the MSG run kind of hang over the hung over the tour in a way that wasn't really bad. It just kind of pushed them to mess around with set listing uh, in certain shows. It pushed them to kind of expand jams in parts of the tour that were less engaging than others. Specifically, that like Wilmington, Burgettstown uh, stretch of the tour. Those those four shows aren't necessarily my favorites, but there are still some really good jams from those shows, like the song I heard the ocean sing, uh, the Everything's Right, um, the Soul Planet is pretty solid. Um, there's like a Ruby Waves from Burgettstown that's really good. What was the one? It's like it starts off the second set is Everything's Right, Soul Planet. That was uh, night one or two of Burgettstown. I think it was night two. That's a really good segment of music. Like the whole... Yeah. The show on the whole overall wasn't the greatest, but that's very much worth going back to. Yeah, they had segments like that that were really cool. I thought as well, like you said this, but from a bright jamming standpoint, just to like give out a few examples, like the 729 Fuego, we both really liked. And that is a very bright, beautiful major key jam. The 728 Wave of Hope, the second song of the MSG residency. It's just like 20 minutes of like, oh my God, Trey, how, how many times can you peak a jam? The 84 Mics, the 725 Well, these are all like big jams. But they don't spend a ton of time in like the darkness the way that Spring Jams did. They're very bright, very engaging. Yeah, probably, like I said, that 8-4 was arguably the best mic song since 1.0 just because it had the second jam that everybody craves and it kept going and going and going. And I think with that show, what, at some point there was a huge cross-eyed and painless in the mic's groove and if they had gone directly from Crossside and Painless in the week of Pog, it would have been one of like the greatest sets of fish ever. Yeah. But they didn't. I what was like what was in there that they didn't they didn't play Week of Pog to the Encore, which I thought was quite confusing. Yeah, that second sect starts Mike's Sand Crosside. And Crosside going into Week of Pog to then jam and close out feels like one of the best sets ever, but then would have been perfect. It was right. It was right there. Fishman was like playing the Weekapaw groove. He was playing it, and Trey's like, nee. 
We went A Life Beyond the Dream, The Lizards, My While My Guitar Gently Weeps, and then Weak Bug Groove, which was like five minutes into Fluffhead, which, yeah, that whole segment, like, objectively all good songs. Yeah. If you but wanted to play in, Life Beyond the Dream, playing it after you close out the mic screw would have been perfect. You would have been... That's it. That's the spot. You would have earned your Broadway showstopper. And then Lizards, George Harrison... Hell to the S. Yes. But yes. Who knows why? Who knows why they why they do what they do? But it's the it's the magic of it is like even when they do something that we from afar are like, I don't know if I'd make that choice. There's the analysis that's possible and that's why we keep doing this. Um I have a daughter who's four and she's in pre K and they have these things called like uh like color coded choices. It's a good choice, it's a green choice, <laughs> red is a bad choice, and it's a yellow choice, is mmm. You're going to make a yellow choice, Aviva. I want to tell Trey, if you play that weak pog, it's a green choice. Otherwise, yeah, it's, it's a yellow choice, my guy. Yellow choice. I'm imagining like a soccer referee uh, running up on stage with each song selection and pulling out a red, green, The yellow card. card. <laughs> <laughs> Set's over now. Um, I said this earlier as well, though, but like, from a set listing standpoint, it felt very joyous, uh, to me uh, in a really cool way. Um, that didn't really define a lot of 2022, a lot of 2022 set lists, even when there's great jams, the set list almost felt like a slog to get through. Like, remember like the Meriwether shows, um, Alpine shows in particular, a lot of the Dick Oof. shows, they just felt like we're playing songs cause we have to play songs and, Oh, here's a moment that gets really exciting. This, you had Alpharetta night one, seven fourteen. One of my favorite second sets of the year, 723 from Syracuse has like a five song second set with 20 minute tweezer into a 20 minute, uh, oblivion, uh, 728 night one of MSG. I think we both would agree to this point in the year is the best show of the year. And unless something crazy happens on 1230, I think that this will be the show of the year, um, 8-1, Hannah's first show has just like a really interesting set list where you open with Ghost, Reba, you've got a really cool Timber, uh, awesome Wolfman's set two goes sample into Kill Devil Falls in the Golden Age, and it ends with Sally, Twist, You Enjoy Myself, and the encore is Wilson, Sanity, Bowie, Character Zero. It's a lot of like big songs and good songs in really good places and like a good thing will happen and then they elevate it by song choice. It happened all year. Fourth quarters are much less dire than last summer. Much less dire and like also, you know, my favorite show that I saw this year, 831, I'm just going to read the set list here really quick because on paper it's just brilliant. Like I, I liked 9-1 set two more, but like this whole show of 831 – 20-Minute Carini, Haley's, Blazon, Caspian, We're Come to Outlive Our Brains, first one in like two years, uh, Mercury, Ruby Waves, Character Zero, Set 2, Set Your Soul Free, Tweezer, Sea of Stars, Oblivion, Light, Slave to the Traffic Light, Show of Life, Say It to Me, Santos, Encore. Like on paper, even without ever hearing it, you're like, that's a really good show. There's just really good song selection, rarities, big songs here and there. I don't know. It's just, they, they felt like this year they understood certain songs should be played in certain spots. They didn't take as many chances with set listing, but they, especially during the summer, threw out a bunch of shows that even if you didn't go 25 minutes deep, you still had a really good time. There's still a good amount of music to listen back to. Do you agree? Yeah, I would agree with that. 
100%. I'm kind of looking forward to going back to um, the shows in Pennsylvania and North Carolina were kind of seen as maybe being a slight dip, but I think I even seem to recall, like, you know, like you said, interesting aspects coming out of those shows that on paper didn't seem yeah. so hot. Yeah, there's a really good stash from Burgettstown. There's a really good a song I heard the ocean sing from Wilmington. Just good moments. I recall night one of the man, the second set, stringing a lot of songs together, but with such manic, speedy energy that he kind of got caught up in it. And then, what, night two is the one that had, there's a gigantic Carini of night two of the man. It was, uh, the highlights were frequent. And like you said, set listing was a very big strength of the summer. And also, no, I just want to touch upon the two, uh, the two shows that weren't supposed to occur were yeah. uh, October, I mean, sorry, August 25th and 26th at, uh, at SPAC, being the Vermont flood relief shows. I would say 825 could be a top 10 show of the year just because there's a simple in the second set that it's, you don't believe it when you're listening to it. No. Just like, what is, it's definitely one of those, what the hell is going on? A kind of the ambient darkness that made up a lot of the fall tour actually can kind of be pointed, that simple points the way. And then the next night after that is the second set's a big Derek Trucks Fest. Was that the one, was it, I think it was the 26th, the first set, it had the sand that was like like the Wizard of Oz theme sand? That was the 25th. Um, oh, all right, okay, night one. <clears throat> okay. Yeah, the 25th, I mean, just speaking of settlers, like, Killed of a Falls, Moma Dance, really good Moma Dance, Ocelot, Wedge, Mole, Punch in the Eye, Sand with the Munchkin Land teases, Rock and Roll, and then the second set is Evolve, Wave of Hope, Simple, Fuego, Chalk Dust, all great versions, uh, pretty yeah. much a perfect second set. Um, all meat, night two, all fucking big lasagna. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. All, all, uh, all the layers, right. All the layers. Uh, night two, yeah, it's... um. It's not the best full show, but once you get Derek Trucks out there for Golden Age, Everything's Right, Life Beyond the Dream, First Tube, and Possum. First Tube. He adds something to Golden Age and First Tube that I did not think was possible for a slide guitarist in the Allman Brothers um, <clears throat> and in the Derek, in the uh, in Tedeschi Trucks band. Um, and then Everything's Right, Life Beyond the Dream, and Possum feel perfectly tailor-made for him stylistically. But that was one of the best fish sit-ins I've ever heard. Um before we turn to fall, um, the only, the last thing I'll say is just Dick's to me felt like a true transition between summer and fall. It was kind of perfect that they had two weeks off between MSG and SPAC and then basically a week off between SPAC and Dick's. And it felt like you had that bright, you know, orange sunset brightness and beauty of the summer jamming with a bit of the like rhythmically diverse dark jamming in kind of the sand and the tweezer and the ruby waves and the light and the howling. Oh my God. Amazing howling. Yeah. Great 46 days. You just had like, it, it felt like not so much of a close of summer tour, but a transition to fall, which may be part of the reason that we don't see a ton of difference between the two tours. But what were your thoughts of Dick's this year? I liked everything up until the last night. I thought night one, yes. night one top to bottom was awesome. Night two, the first set wasn't too remarkable, but the second set was the best set of Dick's. One of my favorite sets of the summer. 
to be honest, I have no recollection night three and night four. They just seemed tired and like they wanted to get off stage as quickly as possible. <laughs> yeah. Night three has slightly grown on me since, uh, since being there. Um, I think I might've been tired. It's just a long weekend. Um, but had open with a good 20 minute fluff at and the rest of the set one wasn't very notable set two. It's weird. Cause set two had a chance to be awesome, but they kind of bailed on a few jams. It started with a bag jam that then bailed into Choctaw's torture, which then bailed into either edge, which then went into the 46 days howling Piper segment. It was some of my favorite fish. All right. Of, okay. <clears throat> of dicks. Yeah, right. That was actually the one with the really cool fourth quarter. Really cool fourth quarter and then a strange grab bag six song encore. <laughs> just like, what the hell? Ah, like they just wouldn't right. stop playing that night. Um, but yeah, night night four was one of my least favorite shows I've ever seen. Um, I thought it was just not a, not a very notable or fun or good or uh, exciting fish show. Uh, it just kind of happened. Um Let's talk a little bit about fall. So we had a fall tour that started about six weeks after summer, uh, eight shows. This has been a debate in my head over the last couple of years since I started doing these eight show runs. Um, I think I'm just conceding it's tour. They go to multiple cities, but I, I, I do, we talked a lot about this, um, in our text thread with Josh, uh, the thread that tends to create the foundations for a lot of these episodes. Uh, <laughs> um, these eight show runs feel like the happy medium of where fish is at right now. It feels like a good spot for them. And it feels like while there's the risk of, if things don't start out that great, it, there's not a lot of time to rebound. It, it does seem like it's the proper length where the band goes in at kind of 90% and then can elevate like we saw over the spring tour and like we saw in some ways for the fall tour. Um, but from a thematic standpoint, like this started almost as a no repeats run. It felt like we were getting no repeats and then we didn't. And I'm glad that we didn't, but I, I kind of wish there had been a little bit more repetition early on in the tour. Um, it was a really, really hot start to the overall tour. It kind of petered out but we got this kind of return of dark and weird jamming. So it's a little bit of a mixed bag. I really, really liked parts of it. I didn't like others. What were your kind of general overall thoughts thematically of the fall tour? Yeah. Like you said, a hot start, I kind of petered out of it. The last two shows being Chicago two and three smack a little bit of tiredness. I think Saturday more so than Sunday. I didn't like Saturday at all. Sunday, the second set was kind of one of those fuck it, throw it against the wall and see what sticks. And in retrospect, I think a lot kind of actually stuck. There's like some very interesting set list calls in that uh, that Sunday show. I mean, playing the Evolve was like the third to last song in the second set in the fourth quarter, which I love that song. I usually think of it as like a set opener or a first set song, but it kind of worked in that context. Um they clearly get nostalgic feels playing the college gym in Dayton, Ohio, because I think the two Dayton shows, especially the second night, were very strong, and Trey raving about the room, how he wants to come back. I mean, obviously, Dayton was the big hit of a huge show from fall 1997. I think they played there again leading up to uh, the Baker's Dozen, and then this is the first time there since 2017. Nashville night three, I thought probably had the strongest second set of the run. 
That was the one with the cinnamon girl bust out and the very dissonant, dark, robot sex-sounding end of Golden Age. Ooh. Kind of eclipsed by somewhat of a kind of a lame first set. But, yeah, like we've been saying this whole time, definitely much of the dark, clanking, metallic, scary stuff relative to the fall tour. And we enjoy that. I love those stylistic spaces for, for fish. I mean, this was the half hour, um, you know, with the Golden Age and also, of course, the incredible 30-minute long Ruby Waves from Night 2 of Dayton. The last five minutes of that are just uh, quite the trip. Yeah, I feel I feel similar to where you're at. I mean, I feel like Nashville Night 2, Dayton Night 2, Chicago Night 1 are some of the more fun nights of the overall uh, year. Um, I think I have Dayton Night 1 as... My overall favorite show, Fall, followed by Chicago Night One, um, or excuse me, Dayton Night Two, Chicago Night One, and Nashville Night Two. The rest was kind of just really, really solid in parts. I think that to your point about Chicago. The only show I did not like was was Chicago Night Two. Everything else was at the very least enjoyable. I've got to go back. I I think I enjoyed Chicago Night Two more than you did. Um, I really liked the jamming in set one and I thought set two worked. It made a little bit more sense than the following night. But as I'm looking at the set list and as I'm kind of remembering it, like your point about there was more interesting jamming and more risk taking in night three, whereas night two kind of feels like once they kind of bailed on what could have been a very interesting split open and melt, we then get what's the use? Everything's right, no quarter fluffhead, which almost kind of just feels like a race to the end of the set. Like, all right, this song yeah. works. Okay, this song works. Um, so I got to go back and re-listen to those shows. I haven't spent as much time with the last couple of nights of Chicago as I did earlier in the tour, but I think overall, you know, just to like zero in on a show, like Nashville Night Two kind of had everything that I think has made twenty twenty three fish really interesting. Really cool opener, 2001. They they thought it was their 2001st show, so they threw they played that. Uh, fascinating mole that goes back into 2001, back in the mole. Good stash. Uh, really, really wild split up in a melt that we talked excellent about Excellent stash. Really good stash, excellent, that show. Yeah, really good stash. Um, excellent uh, split up in a melt that we talked about. And then set two... Life-saving gun into sand and everything's right into cities, which is a standout cities, uh, into llama, into I always want it this way and bug. Slow llama. It slow llama, like you're right. Cities funk and the slow llama. Yeah, it was just page butter. EDM throwdown and then bug. And then we got Lonely Trip and Harry Hood. Like that, that really kind of signifies where the band has been at. We should talk briefly about Life-Saving Gun. That's a song um, from January, right? The Paige Trey duet album. Yeah, really interesting album and a song that feels almost in the same way that I always wanted this way did when it first emerged as kind of a directional shift for the band towards more mechanical songwriting, more danceable beats, um, kind of industrial, uh, almost in the way that pages vita blue project has gone um although i thought this was a little bit more this kind of felt like casvolt vox playing uh a page vita blue song um 
I really like Life is Saving Gun. I think it's a really cool tune, and I, I hope they continue to expand it. Yeah, it's got a lot of promise, definitely. I like the groove. I like the lyrics, the chorus. I'm trying to imagine like a life-saving gun. I'm like, is it like a flare gun? What are they? <laughs> what type of gun are they talking about here? I imagine like them shooting flares up into the skies, and that's that's a life-saving gun. But yeah, um, that record January. Out, it shoots out food, but it also shoots out a lack of demand for consumer goods, so that inflation comes down. Okay. That's right. It gives you food, but okay. All right. What is it? What is the food? What is, was it Soylent Green? Yeah, right. <laughs> it shoots out Soylent Green all over the audience. That's what they, sh- that's what's going to be the next, that's like the New Year's gag is like, they're just going to have a bunch of guns spraying fucking Soylent Green all over the fucking audience. <laughs> this is all you need. There's your life-saving gun, motherfuckers. <laughs> Read the fucking book. Um. Earning our E, earning the E. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I was just going to say, actually, it's on January, and that's, uh, you didn't get much hype or anything when it, did, when it dropped, but actually the page tray record January is kind of much more interesting and takes more risks and has more interesting noises than you would think when you hear like page and tray. Like it's an actual record. It's not, just like them hanging out on the porch of the bar and playing fish songs. Like it's, it's more, more thought went into it, I guess. Yeah. If you haven't heard that record, I would, I could not, I cannot recommend it enough. Um, it's in my it's worth hearing. 30 of the year. I think it's a really good, I've listened to it a bunch of times and I would be shocked if that record isn't part of the reason that there was so much connection between the band members this year. It's, it's clearly a creative project between Trey and Paige. I hope that they make more of them because it, it seems to be having a huge effect on the overall band. Um, pivoting just really quickly before we jump into the music segment here. So we picked two jams that we want to highlight one from summer, one from fall. Um, both are Ruby waves. Uh, the one from summer is from Alpharetta. The one from Paul from fall is, uh, the Dayton version really quickly, Dave, what are your thoughts on these jams? What are your thoughts on the differences? What are your thoughts on kind of what makes these jams special? Because I think we're both in agreement that these are two of the best jams of the overall year. Um, as things currently stand for me i have not done a full re-listen to my top jams list but i have the 714 version as my number two favorite jam of the year and the 1011 version as my number four favorite jam of the year i could see that potentially changing just based on where my headspace has been at the last couple weeks and months listening to these but um what are your thoughts on these two jams stylistic similarities and differences well first of all i think that as we've said in the past ruby waves is he Tony Gwynn of Fish Songs and that it's always a hit. No matter what, it bats always. over 300. It's, it's got a very, very high batting average. I think both of those are actually very good encapsulations of the tours in which they took place because the 714 Ruby Waves, it's very bright, very almondsy. It's a perpetual motion machine. There's one part where Trey uh, Page is playing, I think it's his mood keyboard, where it almost sounds like he's having like some kind of like alien conversation on his keyboards. <laughs> like they're going like, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? How are you? <laughs> As such. And that, that 714, you think it's going to end, it just doesn't. It just keeps going. More and more patterns. Endless. More and more happiness. 
one of the better like treadmill gyms that they put together in quite a while. And the October 11th Ruby Waves, 30 minutes long, a big portion of it is the Paradise City Jam, which kind of sounds exactly like it sounded in uh, the Northerly Island Wedge in 2014. And that concludes with a very Krautrock type jam, which we're going to talk about a bit more in terms of darkness and repetition and synthesizers. And that's like kind of one of the more interesting seven minute chunks of the entire summer. I know some people say that Ruby Waves didn't really get kicked until about minute 16. I think that's bullshit. I think it's entirely interesting the whole way through. So, but definitely uh, that contains a good portion of the darkness that we tend to associate more with the fall. But either way, I mean, yeah, take your pick. I think both are top 10 jams from the year. Yeah, and it's, you know, Ruby Waves has just, it's, it's become every time it starts, you know you're in for something. <clears throat> and it's always really special. Um, I could rattle off a number of versions that uh, over the last five years have just been some of the best jams of those given years. And it's just, it's almost endless. And it's, it's really one of the songs of the eras right now. Um, you know, the summer version from Alpharetta, it does this really interesting thing where it is bright. It does peak in the manner that you're describing that is, is in line with a lot of the summer tour, but it doesn't feel like it needs to peak, which is what is really interesting to me where a lot of these really good jams on the tour have moments where it's really wild, really interesting. And then at some point, Trey kind of like does his like, you know, and like the band just like shifts to this upward peak and suddenly we're like five minutes of like white lights. Let's go. Let's fucking go raise our hands to the heavens. Fish is going to absolutely just melt our faces right now. And I love that stuff. And it's like super joyful and it's super blissful, especially when you're there. But I love how this Ruby waves just keeps challenging itself. It's these backwards weird riffs Trey plays something page plays something all the while they're building tension and it ultimately peaks in a really fascinating way the Dayton version though and I was listening to it today and you're absolutely right like the first 10 minutes of that jam I have no idea how people are not completely dialed into that it's this like calypso beat that Fishman and Trey are going back and forth on. And it's like almost like Plinko jamming and it builds really, really nicely into that paradise city jam or roll with the changes. Some people will say, I don't know who's right. I don't know who's wrong, but you know, it is what it is. There's always got to be a debate. Um, but then, yeah, it, 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 and it's funny cause <laughs> my dad was with us, uh, when, when the fish tour was happening, uh, staying with us. And, um, he, <laughs> He put my son down uh, to to bed one night, uh, the night of the second night of Dayton, and comes out as Fish was just getting to the jam segment of Ruby Waves, and um, asked me, you know, what what they were playing. I told him, and my dad's been to a couple Fish shows, and he's very he he's curious about Fish without like diving fully in, but he definitely appreciates them. I didn't know if he was going to hang out for the whole jam, especially if it went long and it went long. And at the end of it, he just goes, what a fucking jam. And I knew right then and there, like <laughs> he got it. And you know, it was, you know, camera angles were great where you could just see Fishman like playing like eight different arms and, uh, Trey just like moving around his whole effects board in a really cool way. So 
Both these jams, like stylistically, we're going to play a bunch of Krautrock after the break to really showcase um, thematically kind of what we thought about these jams, but they both feel interconnected. They feel like they're driving forward in a really interesting way, and they show that brightness and the darkness that really hovers over the larger tours, both tours, in a way that um, I think is going to have just a ton of replay value. I think it's very safe to say that the two of us feel really, really positive about the state of fish at the end of, you know, the main touring segment of the year. Obviously we're going to get MSG and who knows what that brings, but, um, I don't know. I, I feel really good about where the band is at. And I feel like these two Ruby waves really exemplify why I feel great. Yeah. 100%. This is, uh, 40 years down the line. You still don't get this anywhere else. And it's no. perfectly illustrated in these 714 and October 11th Ruby on that note, let's listen to some of them. Thank you. 
hope you guys really enjoyed those two examples of just excellent fish improv from the 714 Ruby Waves and the 1011 Ruby Waves. I hope you enjoyed our breakdown of Fish's Summer and Fall 2023 tours. A lot to really enjoy, a lot to really dig into. Um, we're going to transition here to the second segment of the show, which is a historical overview of Kraut Rock. We are going to dive into the Dutchland genre of music that inspires fast driving down the Audubon, uh, groovy suits, uh, synthesizers that just make you feel like you're in the movie 2001. And uh, David over here has prepared a presentation to give you guys as 10,000 foot view. What do you need to know about Krautrock as a noob? Broad view, broad view. Broad it's view. really, cr- yeah. So Krautrock, I guess we could say it's a broad genre. Experimental rock music developed in West Germany, late 60s, early 1970s. And it's kind of, you got your blend of uh, psychedelic rock, avant-garde, and electronic music. And kind of when people think about crowd rock, they really think about hypnotic rhythms, extended improvisation, early synthesizers. I mean, we're not talking so much rhythm and blues that you get in like traditional Anglo-American rock music or even like a Led Zeppelin, that type of thing. It's very much its own forward propulsion synthesizer type music. And the actual turn crowd rock uh, was made popular by British music journalists kind of uh, as a humorous umbrella for all these diverse German bands. I think at the time, artists did not like being labeled as such, but nowadays it's not controversial at all. It's a term that gets kind of tossed around to describe the bands that we are going to discuss. It's been, um, as I've been saying... There's varied approaches. There's lots of psychedelic, electronic, and rock music. But kind of when people tend to think about crowd rock, one common feature is the motoric beat, which is the 4-4 beat often used by drummers associated with crowd rock. Kind of a kick drum heavy, pulsating groove that creates the flowing feel. That's when you're talking about driving down the Autobahn, driving down the highway, you've got your sunglasses on, everything's right. And you can especially hear this in uh, the band Noi, their song Hallow Gallo. Uh, there's Can, Mother Sky. Definitely you get a lot of motoric in the final five minutes of uh, Kraftwerk's Autobahn, the harmonious song Dino, and in Wilco, Spiders. Easily one of the best-known American krautrock jams. That is a krautrock jam to its core. Plus... You also get a lot of uh, 4 4 4 propulsion in the best War on Drugs songs, and that the War on Drugs song Harmonia's Dream appropriately it sounds a lot like Harmonia. Adam Granshaw knew what he was doing when he called it that. So, really, why are we talking about this type of music in relation to fish? Well, like we said, the end of the Dayton Ruby Waves, and in particular, the July 29th Fuego from the Garden, very, very crot rock. These jams, they're repetitious, they're synth-driven, they are propulsive. The 729 Fuego in particular had me thinking I had transferred myself to a can concert circa 1975 when Trey is doing the 
and there's like blasts of white light coming at you on stage. Something to behold. Um, we're going to stream together a whole bunch of songs. We kind of think it's a, a good overview of Kraut Rock. Brian, what are your uh, thoughts on this type of music and how it's kind of been incorporated into some recent Fish Jams? It's funny, like, I've spent a lot of the last couple of days listening through a bunch of kraut rock, a bunch of noi, a bunch of craft work and can. Um, and it's wild how, like, from a stylistic standpoint, you you hear its fingerprints everywhere. And it feels like when you're listening to these bands, even though there's a lot of stylistic differences, like noi is much more synths. Uh, kind of soothing in, in its nature. It feels uh, like you're just like in a really nice balm. Uh, like you've, you've taken a very pleasant uh, painkiller, if you will. And you're just like, your joints are at ease is the way that Noi feels uh, to my brain. Can is a little bit more wild, weird, abstract, kind of 70s miles jazz-like. And then Kraftwerk Can is, is funky as hell. It's funky There's as hell. Like- it's got it's raw. Funky. Yeah. Um, and then craft work is obviously like very synth heavy and feels like very digital, like on the, uh, in a way that sounds almost cheesy at times, but I think sounds really cool. Cause it's like the cusp of technology in the late seventies, early eighties. You hear a lot of trans, uh, Neil Young's album trans in their, in their work. Um, and Harmonia is, you know, like you said, uh, the Warren Drug song, Harmonia's Dream, like it's very lush, it's beautiful, it's almost shoegazy, almost like slow dive. I, I hear just like so many, like the best way to describe this music is the touch points you hear other places. Um, the way that the motoric beat is used kind of in industrial and post-rock, um, the way that synthesizers in rock music in the 1990s um, really kind of dominated uh, in the 1980s. Um I don't know. I feel when I listen to this music, um, it's also the kind of foundation of where jam band music would go in a lot of ways that I really like. Like not a lot of jam bands really employ the use of uh, jazz the way that kind of the Grateful Dead did Um, and Fish has in some ways, but even Fish to a degree like at their best, they sound when they're jamming like a kraut rock band in the way that it's all hyper-connected. It's all rhythmic, like as in, almost in like a seance, like a, uh, you know, like a chant type of manner. And then the synthesizers and the guitars of Trey and Page color the top of it with these melodies that sound almost otherworldly. It's, it, it's music that sounds to me like it comes out of like, um, uh, like it could be the best, like Noi in particular, it could be like the best soundtrack to a recreation of uh, um, uh, Kurt Vonnegut's Sirens of Titan, especially the mm. outer space scene, scenes. It's just like, there's something otherworldly about this, but also um, it's so familiar because so much of the music that we listen to, as we're going to talk about here in our, sec- in our next segment, but so much of the music we listen to today from a jamming standpoint feels inspired by crowd rock. Yep, I would agree with you 100%. Let's just do a quick transition to uh, a couple of bands from this most most recent century that kind of exhibit some of these qualities in Kraut Rock. Yeah, so as we noted, like this is really ever-present in um, the jam world from a jamming standpoint. Um, obviously, funk has a lot of fingerprints, um, but I think Kraut Rock at its, at its best, you know, the jam band world has been... Um, 
especially a lot of the jam bands that we listen to have been really influenced by Krautrock, um, even in ways that may not seem uh, apparent from the start. But also there's a bunch of other young bands that we listen to that have really utilized um, this wide-ranging style and kind of the um, influence of synthesizers and the motoric beat uh, and, and this kind of driving melody. And two of them we wanted to feature here at the end of this episode. One of them is a band that we're always looking for excuses to talk about. Uh, and the other one is a band that we've definitely talked about before, but um, I don't feel like enough people are listening. And uh, we, we both revisited their 2022 record and think that you all should check it out. So the first band is um, none other than The Giz, uh, The King Gizzard and The Lizard Wizard, who just put out an album in October called The Silver Chord that um, is indebted to Krautrock in a way that someone could accuse them of highway robbery and they wouldn't be wrong, but also why would you accuse them? Because it has all the fingerprints of the Giz and it's a love letter to Krautrock in a way that you should never accuse them of anything uh, ill here. It's a super engaging and fun and amazing record. And the other band is Horse Lords out of Baltimore who put out a record just about a year ago as of recording called uh, come radley objects that uh is so kraut rock it 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 uh it you can you can smell the sauerkraut uh it is amazing stuff um and we love both these records what, what are your thoughts on both of these and kind of where do you hear them you know picking off the influence of of kraut rock you can smell the bratwurst and the big pints of marzen at the Oktoberfest. fest <laughs> um, is uh coming out of the wood yes Certainly the new Giz record, it's entirely all analog synthesizers. So lots of bleeps and bloops, and a lot of the songs come in extended 20-minute versions. There's actually two versions of the record. There's one that's a half hour, one that's about 90 minutes. And with the 90-minute one, is definitely very appropriate for driving down the Autobahn in your coolest glasses, just not paying any Say attention yeah. to the speed limit because there is yeah. not one. Thea, yes, my God, the 20-minute Thea. And then, yeah, the Horse Lords album, that, and to me, I heard the end of the Ruby Waves from um, the Dayton Ruby Waves. I thought, oh, all right, this sounds like Horse Lords. It's just this, like, perfectly interlocking music machine. I mean, the first song on the Horse Lords record is basically, like, nine versions of Dave's Energy Guide, just kind of, like, intersecting with each other, that sort of early 80s, like King Crimson type sound. So yeah, all of those, both the Horse Lords, the New Giz, owe a heck of a lot to Krat Rock and also, you know, sound extremely similar to some of the more, some of the more recent Fist Jams. So, I think what we're going to do here is we're going to do the mashup of all the previous Krat Rock songs from the 70s bands we had discussed and also we're going to play you a bit of something off uh, the new King Gizzard, The Silver Chord, as well as uh, a track from Comradely Objects by Horse Lords.
So thank you all. Got caught up with Fish 2023, the big summer 2023 breakdown, a big fall 2023 breakdown. We even got some conversation about Goose Neggy, maybe some controversial conversation. I don't know. Some people might be pissed when they hear our Goose content. And you know, to that, I, I will just say, we love our bands. We love them dearly. And we feel that part of the responsibility of loving our bands is being critical from time to time, showing some tough love. It's like with your kids. I love my kids more than anything in this world, but there are times where I'm like, hey, 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 hey. The decision you're making right now is straight up wrong, and here's why it's wrong. We're here to- I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. (laughs) That's it, exactly. (laughs) I love you, Goose. I just- I, Goose I know playing lead up in the second set, playing Mr. Action in the second set. That's a red choice, Goose. <laughs> I mean, those playing Mr. Are Action just... at all is a red choice. Ugh. 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 I will say though, one of my favorite moments of the Goose shows I saw, uh, they played SOS in the two slot, and I was standing next to RJB, who knows my feelings on that song, and he just turned to me and started laughing uncontrollably and. I just started laughing uncontrollably. And it was the only time I've ever really enjoyed SOS. And then I immediately looked at my phone and I got two giant LOL texts from Dave and Josh. Uh, you just knew. Yeah. You knew. Um, so hopefully our comments were not taken too seriously or too painfully. We love you guys out there. Um, thank you all, though, for hanging with us in this episode, episode 124. We are. You know, when we came back last year, we basically were like, we'll do like one a month. And I think we've basically done one a month. Uh, uh, well, we've done, we'll do 10 episodes this year. So it's less yeah. than our original goal was. But I think that these were quality episodes. We've had a ton of fun. We're going to keep this going into 2024. I don't see any end of the BTP at this point in time. We're really digging uh, the new setup and we hope you are as well. Um Really quickly, before we go here, um, we are recording our top albums episode, our top music of 2023 in the next couple of weeks. If you have thoughts on music, favorite shows, favorite albums, um, favorite fish jams, whatever it may be, doesn't have to be a concentrated top five list, but go ahead and email those to beyond the pond podcast at gmail.com and we'll share some of them in our final episode of the year. Uh, we'll get that out in December and then in January we'll do a cover, uh, covering of, um, fish MSG. And then we're going to kind of figure out what February through the rest of 2024 is going to look like, but we're excited to be back. Indeed. Also want to send out a happy birthday to our, our buddy, Mr. Tom Marshall, who uh, I think his birthday is Saturday, so by the time this thing airs, he'll be 60 years old. It's a nice round number. Here's to another 40. I don't think Tom wants to be 120 years old. It's 100. <laughs> That's cool. So happy birthday, Tom. Hope uh, all is doing well on your end. We appreciate it when uh, you came on episode 100. It was one of our better episodes. One so, of our favorite guests, one of our favorite people, uh, and the writer of some of our favorite songs. Exactly. Um, All the above. Can I just say before we uh, close here, uh, to get 
just a little personal for a second here before we close out. Uh, my grandmother passed away about a week, a week ago, uh, as of recording. Um, and she was 97, just about to turn 98. She was an amazing woman. Um, I, growing up, she was, she always had music on, she always had music and she was always cooking. And those are two defining things that I loved and bring back really warm and amazing memories in my life and were foundational for me and are two things that are always a part of my life. There's always music on in my house and I love cooking as much as possible. And I try to fill the house with, uh, the smell of cooking, hopefully good food. And, uh, I loved her uh, a ton. We named our daughter, I uh, gave her the middle name Joyce after my grandmother. Uh, she was a total survivor of this world, lost two husbands, survived the great depression, survived, uh, world war two, uh, lived a very long, healthy, happy, inspirational life. Could not have asked for a greater, greater grandmother in this world. Uh, she passed away peacefully, uh, in late October and I want to actually play, um, she, it later in life, she loved sewing. And when she felt arthritis coming on, she decided to learn the ukulele to, um, keep her hands and her fingers nimble. And so she recorded herself in her eighties playing the ukulele. And, um, I want to play a little bit as we go out, uh, in this episode, um, just a couple, like, you know, a, a short little sample of her music just to share with you all, uh, a absolute gem of a person. Um, so, uh, I love you, granny. I, I hope that you're doing well wherever you are in this greater cosmic universe. Um, but, uh, I will never forget you in this world and, um, uh, I'm just filled with love and gratitude that I got to know you. Absolutely. She's playing the ukulele on the other side. She's entertaining. She's Joyce's bashing out the hits on the uke. Guaranteed. She was. She was. I'm looking forward to hearing that. So, come back in December. We will be talking about uh, our favorite year-end albums. I'm very much looking forward to that episode because I got opinions. So, come back with us for that. We will hold hands. We'll sing Kumbaya. We'll get ready to hear some ukulele right now. And then we'll go beyond the pond. You were meant for me.
Osiris. <laughs> 